We're going to read Psalm chapter 1, and I want this to be a declaration for us together. Um, We're going to read this together, and I'll set the pace for us. So are you ready? Have we look at me? Nod. Ready? Good to go? So let's read Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Let's ask God that he would speak to us through his word. God, thank you so much that you are good to us. So good that you have not abandoned us, but you have left for us a remnant of who you are in this Bible, uh, in the narrative, in the poetry, in the history, and in the declaration and prophecy of all that you are for us. You have given us a remnant of yourself. Would we begin to ask you now, would we begin to seek you now that you would reveal yourself to us? And so in in a way that maybe you can only use your words, would you just ask God that he would speak to you and that it would make sense? We love you. You're faithful to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You're commended to be seated. I told you this wasn't a book. We just kind of sit back and let some expert pretend to pontificate over the top of us, right? We want this to be a corporate practice that we dig into this book and that we let it shape us. And this story begins by illustrating for us what blessing looks like. And as we define blessing, I want to, if you will, offer up a visual aid and maybe technology will, uh, will help me out in this, or maybe I will just scald myself. So in this, uh, in this fancy stainless steel container, I have boiling water, or at least what, what, whoa, see, man, this is going to get fun now. Boiling, scalding water that I'm holding. And I, and I want to illustrate for you a point. You see, I love tea. When it's cold and iced, my favorite form of tea is sweet tea. Um, otherwise, it's just cold, dirty water. Personal opinion there. But when it's hot tea, I don't really like it that sweet. And there's an amazing thing that that you find out, right? If you leave, read the directions on the back of the tea bag, it says something to the effect of drop this in boiling water or hot water or whatever, and let it, and some of you are real tea snobs, you're like, don't boil it because it will, it will, it will scald the, the tea. It will scorch it. No, okay, all right, you're right, but this isn't boiling, but, but some happens, uh, a powerful thing that takes place in, in the making of tea, coffee for that matter. Um, the longer that you put this little tea bag in the water, in that hot water, the stronger this tea becomes, the longer that it just sits there, and the, the word we would use is steep, right? It abides in here. It, it remains in here, and it just sits here. And, and, and on the package, it'll say, like, you should wait about four minutes at a minimum. But then you're at this kind of a, at a strange little dilemma. Maybe it's just me, but if you have, like, a French press for coffee, same way, um, you're at this dilemma. Like, I want to drink the tea now. I don't want to wait four minutes, right? I want coffee out of my french press now i don't want to wait 
But then once you wait, here's what happens, especially with like a green tea like this, that's kind of weak, you know, the longer you leave it in there, the stronger and better it becomes, right? And then there's this dilemma, like, do I take it out or do I leave it in? And I just want to leave you with this mental image. I want to leave you with this picture that the longer you leave this tea bag in this hot water, the stronger the tea becomes. The longer it remains there, the, the stronger it becomes. And we could leave it here all night, right? And it would even become that much stronger. I mean, it would be some nasty sludge that you wouldn't want to drink. But it would be stronger, wouldn't it? It would be brewing, steeping, abiding, and remaining in here. So here, I'm going to give you a gift. At the very least, by the time we're watching, we're, we're walking through the Bible here together, if you find yourself drifting off to sleep, you can gaze over here at this little tea that is brewing in front of you. And I want that to be a lasting mental image for you because the picture of blessing in this psalm is a lot like this tea bag that's remaining in this water. There's a picture painted of blessing for us. And the picture is that blessing and a blessed person is like a tree that simply is rooted next to streams of water. That's it. And the longer that that tree remains rooted behind, beside its life force, the stronger it becomes, the deeper its roots become, and the taller it becomes. And I think if we can summarize the first psalm as an introduction to the rest of the psalms, I think you'll find this, that God gives the psalmist here a vision of his will, that is God's will for this person's life. And it's not just any kind of life. It's a blessed, a joyful, and happy life. And God uses, I believe, this vision of blessing to speak to you and to me. So I want to define some terms here that if you've never read through the Bible much, then I want to begin to kind of stir up your affections for it and define some of the terms here that might be more unfamiliar to you. And the first one that we see here, uh, I guess my first goal here is that I, I want you to love the Psalms more. So for the course of this summer, we want to, let's call it the song of the summer, right? Because a psalm is a song or a poem. And we want to spend the next couple of weeks digging into certain psalms. And I want to do a few things. The first thing is, I don't want to just inform you about the psalms. I don't want to just give you more lumps in your brain so that you'll be more knowledgeable about the Bible. But I want to give you an accessible entrance into the Bible such that you will love them more. You will love the Psalms more, and you will come to find out that the Bible is not a book that is necessarily about things that are up there and out there, but especially in the Psalms, it's written by people like you and me. And the experience, the broad experience of the human condition is not glossed over in these chapters. It's raw, it's organic. It's filthy at times, it's, it's dirty, it's, it's troubling at times, but it is real and authentic. And I think when you find yourself in here, you will see that the language of God's people to him is the language that you and I ought to learn how to speak. Because the second thing that I want to accomplish over our weeks here in the Psalms is I think the Psalms teach us how to pray. I think they teach us how to speak the language of God's people, and they teach us how to speak to God. So if you've ever had this experience, you're like, you in, in, your good, in, your, in, your, in your good, like, willful moment, you're like, I'm going to pray more. Okay, here you go, God, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pray. And you know what happens then, right? You start to pray, and then even in your head or out loud, whether it's with people or by yourself, you say the same old things about the same old things. Ever been there? 
You sit to pray, and you're like, I'm going to pray. Now, this is a whole other challenge I've shared with some of you, that if you just try to pray while you're actually doing something else, then don't expect it to be very fruitful. Don't expect to shape your character, right? If, you, if you're just praying in bed before you go to sleep, then good luck. It's not going to work. You're going to go to sleep every time. You're always going to be frustrated by it because you didn't get in bed to pray. You got in bed to go to sleep. And so if you just kind of tack prayer onto it, it doesn't work, right? But, but let's say you try to pray, and if you're like me, sometimes you just start saying the same things, and in your own head, it's like this strange repeat that goes on, and you say this unfruitful, unhelpful stuff. Been there? What I think I can show you is that as we learn the language of God's people, we also learn how to pray to the point that prayer no longer becomes a thing that you tack on the end of the day that rocks you to sleep, but instead maybe, just maybe, prayer becomes for you and me what it ought to be in the Bible, a dialogue between us and our Creator. Get that? Communion with God. The very first story of the Bible is about a couple of people, Adam and Eve, who are walking and talking with God in a garden to the point where this story ends at the very end where God restores everything to a new Jerusalem, a new city, and we go from God's presence in a garden to God's unbridled and unmitigated glorious presence in a city. And I think that when we begin to pray and our hearts become aligned with God's, then we actually experience a little taste of that communion a little taste of that company that God gives Adam and Eve and the people in the new Jerusalem that he restores by Jesus' grace. So two things. I want you to love the Bible and love the Psalms more, but secondly, hopefully by the next couple of weeks, I want you to learn to pray even more. So let's begin to walk through this this psalm, the beginning. This is an introduction to what all of the psalms are. You'll notice there's about 150 psalms, um, and and you'll see here this is kind of the, the... the flagship, the, the direction, the vector is set right here. It says, so it begins with the very first word. You see that first word? Blessed. Now, if you're a good old King James kind of a Christian, you don't say blessed, you say blessed, right? Even though none of us say that, but, but blessed, blessed, you are blessed. Now, this is probably one of the most overused words that you see. It's almost, almost always the most misused word that we find, especially amongst Christians, Right? So you can say, I'm in blessed with this, or God bless me. Oh, they're just blessed. Or if you really don't like someone, I love people in the South, they use blessing as a way to curse someone, and they say something like, well, bless his heart, which is really a nice way of saying that person's a moron. Right? Well, bless his heart, he, and then you, then you say how much you think that person's a moron. Or, or if, even at the most shallow sense, if someone sneezes and you love them and you're a good American, you tell them what? Bless you. Bless you, man. Because apparently somewhere down back in the line, somebody believed like your soul was escaping or a demon was, I mean like, okay, that's, I mean, I looked for that one in the Bible, that's like, thou shalt, if someone sneezes, it is an abomination. Not, I mean, you know, like, I, I haven't seen that. And so this is a weird word. This is a weird word, it's overused, and, and here's what I would argue for you, that, that for us, we tend to see blessing and goodness. Now this word literally throughout the Old Testament means very simply, happy joyful. Now, I I would choose the word joyful more than happy because I think that for us in our culture, we use happy more as an emotion, right? A kind of fleeting sense of of goodness that that comes and goes, like, oh, I'm happy about that. Well, just wait a little while and you won't be, right? That's how I kind of picture happiness, but but maybe if if, if you'll kind of come with me, I think I can show you this through the entirety of the Bible, even that, that there's a sense of shalom or peace or true and lasting joy that God means to show for us eternally. And when we see blessing here, it's meant to give us 
and connote for us this kind of sense of lasting joy, lasting peace, a sense of happiness that doesn't depend on the circumstances. That's important for us because this kind of joy that we tend to place in every other thing is, sets us at a disadvantage to understand a lasting joy, doesn't it? Here's what I mean. Some of the things that make us the most joyful actually make us the most miserable. Other than the lasting joy that God gives us in his peace and mercy in Jesus, there is no source of joy or hope. And you can think of this on the most shallow sense, right? Like, I mean, think of your favorite food. Picture it. What's your favorite meal? Right? I, I know what I can think of. Like, picture that, that favorite thing you want to eat, okay? Now, I know this will sound strange at first, but, but picture eating that same food for the rest of your life. Picture eating it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or supper, wherever you're from. And picture eating that meal. I mean, it's delicious, right? You think, oh, this is good. But here's what's funny. Even by the end of that meal, you don't want any more. Even by the end of enjoying that thing, you already lose your taste for it. You been there? Like, oh, this is so good, and you start off at a, at a, at a speed that, you, you know, you can't keep up, and you're throwing down, and you look like the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest, and you're just eating it, and then you get to the end of it, and you're like, I don't want any more. So much so that, to, like, to, to calm yourself, someone comes around and says, do you want dessert? I mean, and here's what's funny, that this kind of proves the point, they don't offer more of what you had, right? They offer something different. Because that thing that you were enjoying no longer gives that joy. Here's what I would argue. Every single thing this world has to offer is like your favorite meal. It seems really good. But you realize it doesn't have the ability to satisfy long term. And that sense of dissatisfaction isn't meant to rob us of hope, but it's meant to redirect our affections toward the only thing that can satisfy us, and that is the presence of God alone, the grace and mercy of God alone. So when it says blessed, don't think the fleeting happiness that comes when you start eating some cotton candy and then the sadness that comes after when you're done eating two, three, four bags of cotton candy. It's the kind of joy that lasts throughout circumstances. The second thing that I think we have as an obstacle to understanding joy and happiness and true, a biblical sense of blessing and joy, is our consumeristic culture. So when we talk about blessing, we're almost always talking about something that we have, right? So, so when we talk about blessing, we're talking about a gift that someone gave us. Even if we're talking about an ability, we're talking about something that we now possess, something that we have been given. But the same thing is true, isn't it? Like, oh, I was really blessed with the new, this new car. Oh, that's great. That is indeed, what a blessing. But how long does that new car stay new? How long does it stay a blessing before before stuff starts breaking on it, before it leaves you, God forbid, on the side of a road in the middle of South Dakota. And what once was a blessing, as we tend to define it in consumeristic terms, as something that was given to us, a gift that we were blessed with, we see again that it has no ability to satisfy long-term. The third obstacle I think we see is a sense of, I would call meritocracy, 
Uh, we live in, in what I, I would call a society that's driven by merit. That is, it isn't necessarily the voice of people, the majority of people, but the power tends to go to the people with the most merit. That is, the people who have accomplished the most are the ones that receive the most honor. Have you seen this? Like the people who do the most are the people that we tend to honor the most. And here's the problem. What that means is we tend to define blessing in terms of accomplishment. But notice the first three verbs in chapter 1, a verse that I commend to you to remember. Blessing comes from what? It says, blessed is the one. It says, man. This is the word that's like in Genesis. It's not necessarily a gender that we're talking about here. We're talking specifically about mankind, about humanity, about a genre of species. So blessed is the one, but even if, you, you know, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the one who does what? Who gets what? Who experiences what? What is it that causes great blessing? What is it that this person does? What is the gift that this person has been given? We come to find out that none of those categories work. Look at the three verbs. Blessed is the one who walks not or does not walk. Second verb, does not stand. Third verb, does not sit. kind of let that hang over for you just a minute. We'll come back to this, but some of you right now, I, I, want you to re, I want you to realize the freedom of God's blessing. Right now, you think that the curses in your life are a result of something you did. And therefore, you think the good things that you deserve or want in your life are going to be a result of something that you do. And what that does is it creates a horizon of blessing that you never can reach. It creates a sense of blessing that's a mirage that appears to be something good, but it never seems to be attainable. It's always out of reach. Listen to the way that blessing is defined. Blessing is not defined by what this person does, but instead it's defined by what the person does not do. The person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So even the verbs are meant to start to, to, to stir your deeper sense of affection for something that's more eternal and lasting. Rather than something you do, it's like blessing comes from you don't even walk. Forget that. You're not even doing not walk. You don't even stand. Wait, you don't eat. It's not even a blessing comes by not standing. It's, you don't even sit to receive blessing. As if to say to you right now, like, the blessing that God means to give you isn't because of a place you go or a thing you do. It isn't because of a place you stand. It isn't even a place that you sit or sleep. It is something else entirely. A person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. That idea of advice or counsel we've been talking about for the last few weeks, but, but to take the advice of someone who is evil and to live in the way or to follow the advice and, and take the advice and counsel of someone who is wicked or evil is something that will rob you of blessing but it gets even deeper not only will following the advice of evil rob you of blessing but even just standing in the path or the way of people who are sinful if you find yourself along the way the way of sin in the crowd of sin being caught up in the flow in this way also will rob you of blessing to the point that not even sitting or being in the company of scoffers, scorners, all of these things will rob you of blessing. Every single one of you. Now you have to define some of the terms here, and this is where I just want to hang for just a minute before we move on. 
It seems to say uh, a word here that, that I don't know about you, but I don't use often, scoff or scorn. This is a word that's throughout the Old Testament used in different ways, but it's typically translated scoff or scorn. Well, that's not really helpful, you'll say, because I don't use either of those words. Me neither. So, so to scoff is to speak to someone or about something in a scornfully derisive or mocking way. To mock someone or to deride someone. A scoff is an expression of scornful derision. More in depth, maybe the better way to see this, the definition of scorn is, scorn is the feeling or belief that someone or something is worthless or despicable. It's an expression of contempt, such that to scorn someone is to feel or to express contempt or derision for. It's to ridicule. So the things that will rob you of God's blessing are to be taking and heeding the counsel of wickedness, to be being in the flow, in the path of the way of sinfulness, and then to just even be in the company of derisiveness or bitterness, scornfulness. Why is that important? I think that. I think I can make a case that most of what we tend to experience in our culture is a derivative of one of these three things. Of wickedness and evil, just sinfulness, or at the very least, ridicule. Right? So the first one is, is easier to, to define, right? To, to be in the way of wickedness. This is easier to see. Like, we're kind of in a place right now where, where you just have to turn on the news for the last couple of weeks, and we're almost being desensitized to this kind of influence. So much, do you feel it pulling you in? Do you, do you see it taking the counsel of wickedness? Do you feel it pulling you in? Do you feel this, this magnetism that's presently in our culture that says you have to be against something in order to be for something? Do you get this? It's as if to say that if you love something, you must absolutely hate its opposite. At the most shallow level, this is what, this is what presidential campaigning is like appealing to, isn't it? Isn't it appealing to your most base desires to say that, no, 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 if, if you love this, you must hate this? And we're almost in a place where it, it, it's impossible or countercultural to say, hey, I actually love some Democrats and some Republicans. And people are like, hey, pick a side, man. You can't ride on the fence. You've got to pick a side. Says who? This last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been in this place where I would argue that I'm going to push back on the, the Bible speaks against this. Jesus speaks directly to this, but there's this idea that like if you love black people and you love black people enough to stand up for injustices perpetrated them for the last couple of centuries, you hate police officers. Or the opposite, that if you like love police officers and you mourn the loss of life that police experienced in the last couple of weeks, you hate black people and ignore the plight and the historical injustices perpetrated against them. Have you felt it? Have you felt this, this pull, like, you, you, you better not be for that, because that makes you against this. And Jesus comes along and goes, yeah, love your friends. Stand up for that. By all means, cover your Facebook with stuff that reaffirms your own worldview, okay? But Jesus says something else. That's easy. You ought to love also your enemies. You ought to pray for your enemies. The ones who persecute you, you ought to bless them. And you ought to count yourself blessed by being persecuted for the sake of standing up for what is right. 
You see our culture pulls against this? Pulls against this kind of influence? Our, our culture says, no, you have to follow one way or the other. You have to, now this is, this is what you see, you have to pick the lesser of two evils. You heard this? This is a beautiful thing that the gospel speaks, a breath of life into us. In a broken and sinful world, there are only evils. Jesus is the only way, truth, and life that is not. And to begin to believe that you must pick evil, you must pick something that's less wicked than the next, is being robbed of blessing. Blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the person who doesn't settle for picking for the lesser of two wickedness or evil. Stand in the way of sinners. And the last one hits home the worst. Or to even sit in the seat of scoffers. If I were to speak to you the way that this kind of speaks to me and convicts me and just pass it on to you, here's what I would say. This, this derision, uh, some of us in this room, if you're like me, and you kind of have just, just like bitterness boiling underneath, this comes out like this, you know, you've heard it like, for some of you, your love language in this room is like abuse, right? Like, some of you, like if someone makes fun of you, like that's, you know they love you. I know some of you have come up to me, you're like, hey, ha ha, and make fun of me, and it's actually, and I'm like, I love you, I love you too, I love you right back, I know, there's a big target here. But what it creates is a very cynical and critical nature that comes out piece by piece in the form of sarcasm. Now, I'm not talking about satire. The Bible has a place for satire. It has a place in which, like, that which is ironic or dissonant with reality points to something bigger. Right? This is beautiful. I don't know if you're one of my favorite stories. Uh, uh, Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. And you see Elisha, and he's walking around, and, and, and he puts God up against the gods of, of these people and the, and the worshipers of Baal. And, and Elisha goes, like, when when the other people are trying to set fire to this thing and asking their God to set fire to what's on the altar, Elisha starts making fun of him, and he's like, ha, where's your God? Maybe he's asleep. And he even says, literally, maybe he is in the bathroom. Right, so there's this sense of cynicism toward that which is against God. So I'm not against satire. That's in the Bible. But you know the kind I'm talking about. When what seeps out of our mouths is really just a form of, of unforgiveness and bitterness. Been there? And instead of confessing our anger and bitterness, we just kind of let it drip out piece by piece? Oh, sure you don't. See what I did there? See the bitterness that like seeps out? And instead of graciously and lovingly stepping out of the community of scoffing, scorning, derisiveness, Criticism, it's, it's a place where we find home. Here, here's what I want to warn to you. I'm not going to, I don't mean to like shame you for your sarcasm. In fact, you'll get a lot of it from me, but here's what I think you and I might learn. What if that sense of bitterness that seeps out piece by piece and anger and sarcasm is actually robbing us of a greater joy? What if hanging on to it and letting it come out piece by piece is actually robbing us of joy? Because blessing comes not from what a person does, but in fact here it's marked by what a person does not do. Now we get the really cool verb that it gives us. So a person doesn't walk amongst the wicked. It does not stand in the way or the current of sinfulness. It doesn't even sit or, or even like 
find company in, in bitterness. But instead, look at what it says. It says in verse 2, what a blessed person does is he delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, his instruction, his precepts, on his guidance, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. So did you get why I told you one of my goals here is to make you love the Bible more? Because it seems that if we're going to experience a true lasting blessing, a lasting joy that outlasts the rising and falling tides and influences of our own culture, we have to be rooted in something different. And it says here that our delight has to be in God's instruction and word. It has to be in God's will for your life and mine. My greatest prayer for you is that one day you will hear from the Lord, obey and experience the blessing, and then tell someone else. Our greatest prayer is that we would hear from God and find joy in the greater purpose He has for us. It says He delights in the law of the Lord. I love it. Just first and foremost, the blessing isn't defined by what they do, but the thing that the blessing, the blessed person does, He delights and meditates. Delights and meditates. This word meditation has, has this kind of deeper meaning of rumbling or, or, or mumbling. Throughout the Old Testament, meditation is not this thing where you kind of sit, uh, cross your legs, and, and hum, but instead meditation is this rumination. It's this marination of God's Word inside your soul. Mumbling. Here's the way I would say it to you. Like, what do you mutter under your breath? What are the things that are they're gurgling out, right? They're deep inside, not enough to where you would speak them, but they just kind of boil over and mumble. What do you mumble? What do you mutter to yourself? What's boiling out of you? Because here's what this text seems to imply and this word seems to teach. That's probably what you meditate on. So when someone you know, says or does something you don't like, what, what boils over a little bit? What do you mutter? Is it, oh, man, bless that guy. I love that guy. That guy's awesome. So glad that guy got on to me. Is that what you, you do? You bless your enemies? Or is it something I can't mimic up here in front of you? What do you mumble? What do you mutter? Here, again, it's not, not meant to pour shame on you, but it's meant to Cast a light into a dark place that's now in your own heart. And, and it's saying that if, if you're not going to delight in God's word, if what you meditate on isn't something that's wholesome and life-giving, then it will bubble up out of you piece by piece. And it will rob you of blessing. It will rob you of an eternal sense of joy. So what do we learn about the fact that this is in the format of a song, a psalm? Here's what I think I can show you before we move on is like this idea of meditation, I would argue is like the idea of humming. Okay, so this, this, is, this is dangerous for me. If you hang around me, you'll, you'll know this is the case. Um, every morning I wake up, I, uh, I have a song in my head. And it's almost always something awful. Like it is not like, why, why would that song be in my head? And, and this is why I think that is, because sometimes music has the ability to get inside our soul, and God actually wired you that way. And so we begin to use songs for our advantage, right? Did, did anyone here, just, just raise your hand, you're gonna be, did anyone here learn the ABCs without a song? 
Did anyone just like memorize A, B, C, D? Did anyone, anyone just memorize the ABCs? I mean, we got like homeschool, private school, public school in here. I thought somebody, maybe, right? No, because if you're going to learn 26 letters of the English alphabet, what's the best way to get that in your soul? Sing it, man. Put it to song. Uh, I, I, got a, I, I got to minor in Greek um, because of, I just put declensions of, of different uh, grammars to, to song. Right? Hebrew, same way. To Frere Rajaka, that's the second declension of, of endings for, for Hebrew. How do I remember that? Because it's a silly song. It gets in your soul. Uh, I saw the statistics on this. This is pretty cool. When, uh, when kind of the average American, this is about 10 years ago, the average American was asked about the most familiar songs, the things that stuck in their heads. They was, there was very little agreement across, across different genres um, because people like different, different sorts of types of music. But there was like this massive uh, sense of agreement statistically between people over songs like this, right? You could finish this song. Flintstones. Why on earth is that song taking up space in our brain? And the same thing is true of me. When I wake up in the morning, I've got some song in my head, and it's, like, it's not like a glorifying song. It's not like an exalting Christ sort of song. It's like a song by the Spice Girls from my freshman year in high school. And it's like there was a committee in my brain going like, hey, should we remember where we put our keys? Nah, let's remember the Spice Girls song from ninth grade. And I wake up, and that's what's in my head. I can remember it with a great deal of specificity. Don't know where my cell phone is, but I can remember that. Do you see it? Do you see the way that God has wired us? And do you see now how the importance of the psalms, the poems of our language to God has the ability to get so deep inside of us to the point that if possible, God, by his mercy, will let it be the first thing that boils out of us? Because, friend, when you bleed, when your world starts falling apart, here's what I know. There is no lasting joy from humming or singing a Spice Girl song. When you bleed, humming about the Jetsons or the Simpsons, those songs that are bored deeply in our souls, they have no ability to satisfy, do they? So this thing calls us to a sense of blessing. This psalm calls us to a type of blessing that's rooted so deeply in us that when things start to squeeze us, what bubbles out is blessing. What bubbles out is joy. What bubbles out is a resistance to the forces that want to rob us of happiness. They want to rob us of a sense of eternal joy. I just say that. What if we begin to ruminate in this way? Because then we see the picture of the blessing. The picture of the blessing, this is where... You get the metaphor, like there's lots of good metaphors in the Bible. And if I were to ask you this question, like, what do you want to be like? Right? Like, like what's your symbol? It's easy for some of you. Wanted, if you wanted like a tattoo of who you are, you wanted to symbolize eternally something on you, what would it be? What would be your source of power, your sense of strength? The Bible gives us a lot of good ones, right? Lions and bears, right? There's a lot of snakes. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, that's potent. But what's the picture painted of the person living in a deep sense of blessing? Did you catch it? 
tree. He's like a tree. This person who begins to ruminate and meditate on the blessings and promises of God and his word begins to look like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. so the wicked are not like a tree. What are they like? They're like chaff. Again, that's a word we don't use often. Chaff is kind of a genre word that covers any sort of hull or husk that covers a grain. The picture here is meant to be of wheat, but since you and I probably don't like go to the grocery store and buy raw wheat, I mean, some of you are pretty granola. I know you probably do, but for the rest of us, we don't. When you get wheat right, off of the, right, right, right as it's out of the field, when you rub the wheat in your hand, it's called winnowing, and it pulls the husk off. Picture like a sunflower seed shell or picture like a peanut shell or, or picture something like a pistachio shell. And, and when you rub the husk, the shaft off of it, winning, winnowing was the ability to, to kind of toss up the wheat in the air and the wind would blow the husks, the shaft away, and then the seed, the wheat, the grain that you meant to keep would drop. And a few short months, and this is easier for us to picture shaft. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't eat wheat but the grain I t- tend to like is corn on the cob. It's not because I like corn on the cob. I actually don't like corn on the cob. I like butter and salt. But corn on the cob is an acceptable place in our society to eat butter and salt. And in a few short months, there will be pieces of corn husks from the fields around us that will be blowing around, just blowing, scattering. And it goes in a circle, and I say a dad joke, and I call it a cornado. Just get ready for it. It's on the way. And when I say that silly joke, I want you to picture this. That's what it's like. That's what it's like to live outside of the communion and relationship with God. Waste. Anybody collect sunflower seed shells? No. You throw them away. You spit them out. The wicked are not like a tree planted and rooted in its life source. The wicked will blow away and be worthless. The wind blows them away. Such that the blessing that we experience is like being a tree planted by streams of water. So I want to leave you with this thought. I want to kind of wrap up in this thought, and I want us to kind of pray through it. I want us to, to interactively begin to pray. But, but this is what you see that, that this sense of blessing has. The Being like a tree, being planted by streams of water, being rooted in the life source means this. Seasons affect you, but they do not define you. Did you catch that? It yields fruit when? In its season. So if our life is like a tree, if blessing and being rooted in God is like being a tree, then that means that there are times where there will be desolation. In a few short months, everything that's beautiful and green about our city will turn brown. Now we're blessed there will be this thick layer of snow to cover it up and it'll look like a winter wonderland. But if it doesn't, it will be brown, dry, and lifeless. And here's the thing. That's actually not a bad thing. That's actually part of God's plan. But we don't judge the tree by what it looks like in the winter, do we? We don't reap the fruit from a tree of an apple during the winter. We reap it when it is fruitful. 
such that the seasons come and the seasons go. The seasons turn the colors of the leaves. The season turn the fruitfulness of the plant. But then in the end, it is fruitful again. Some of you right now maybe need to hear this good news. God means to give you a gift. God means to do something for you that will outlast the current season that you're in. Some of you may have kind of staggered in this room this morning and, and you're in the worst, of, like the worst place you could possibly be. Um, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your friendship, in your finances, it may seem like the worst possible place to be. What would it look like for us to be the kind of people who trusted God so faithfully that even in the midst of fruitlessness, we still anticipate the thing that God, through his source of life, will give to us when the springtime comes? You will endure seasons that are awful. Here's what's interesting. They actually make you more fruitful. They actually make you healthier. They actually cause you to deepen your roots. They actually cause you to rely more heavily on the source of life that comes from this. This picture of streams of water is something we see throughout the Psalms. One of my favorite Psalms is one that kind of gets hijacked and looks real frou-frou. Psalm 42, it says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you and thirsts for you, the living God. I love that, that picture that, that the life source water for a deer who's in the middle of a desert is meant to be the picture of our longing for God and His communion with us. You see, this is what typically happens. We, we tend to see God and his blessing. We tend to see uh, th- this picture of who Jesus has created us to be as like one priority amongst many. That God in being immersed and rooted in his source of life and in his people and his community of faith is, is kind of one priority amongst many. You've been there? And we treat Jesus like it's a priority. Like, yeah, I, I, I didn't get a chance to pray or hang, to Jesus or hang out with Jesus' people. I didn't get to do it because I was doing this other stuff. And we basically shuffle Jesus up and down like a list of priorities. And I want to I challenge you. Your life source is not a priority that you can shuffle up and down. Your life source is the thing that you fight for and the thing that you die without. And some of you might need just a radical picture that God's grace on your life isn't a priority that goes up and down. It's the thing that keeps you from dying. God's grace in Jesus Christ for your life isn't a priority that you can shuffle around in seasons and in schedules that come and go. It's the thing that will call your lifeless and rotted body out of the grave when Jesus comes back. And without which you are dead and decaying. Like, right now, until you fall over, I've got nurses in the room, we're good. Right now, would you shuffle air and oxygen up and down your priority list? Just real fast, would you make something more important than breathing? Just for the next couple of minutes. We're going to go on in the scripture, and while, while, while you make something more of a priority than air, we're going to move on. You wouldn't do that, would you? Would you skip a meal today? How long can you live without water? Do you get the picture? So also God has created us not to grow up and run away from home, but to grow deep and abide in him. 
And when we begin to operate on our own power, when we begin to miss the fact that the blessing in our lives doesn't come from what we do, but from where we stand, then we begin to experience a joy that outlasts awful seasons. Proximity matters. Proximity to counsel of wicked, proximity to sinfulness, proximity to criticism, derision, and scoffing, it matters in the same way that proximity to the source of life matters. If you distance yourself from God's word and his people, then things start to fall apart. This is why, uh, this is why we, we invite people uh, this fall into gospel community, into experiencing a group together. It's not because we want to keep, like, we don't keep tabs or, or take uh, attendance on a Sunday morning, but here's what's happened. Here's what happens. We know, this is what we know, that when you start to wander away from the declaration of the truth of God's word and wander away from the people that encourage you in it, you start to die. This will bother some of you because this means in healthy community like the one we're building, <laughs> we actually bother you when you try it. Like when you try to distance yourself and, oh, I need, I need some space, we go, no, no, come back. Come back, root yourself in and delight in God's will for your life because you will die apart from it. I want you to hear the gospel. If you want to, you can join me there or I'll just read it to you. I want to read to you the good news now in the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. I'm going to read you the first few verses of John chapter 15, and I want you to see Jesus completely reword this picture of blessing, and then we're just going to pray together. We're going to try to pray this word over our lives. Jesus says in verse 1, John chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? To hurt you or to harm you? No. It says, in order that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of what? The word that I've spoken to you. Now abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. For I am the vine and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him... It is he that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, hear the language of chaff, of sunflower seed shells. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered. And what are they good for? It says they're thrown into the fire and burned. For if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Did you get that again? That mumbling, that grumbling? When Jesus' words are in you deeply and give you a sense of identity and they bubble out when you're squeezed? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you may ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Did you hear the words of the psalmist coming out again? Whatever the person does, rooted in God, God blesses and it prospers. For as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So now abide in my love. For if you keep my commandments, you hear the words of the psalmist again? If you delight in God's commandments, if you delight in his plan and his will for you, then you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. Now these things I've spoken to you. Why? What for? Remember the first word of Psalm chapter 1, verse 1? Remember the first word? Remember it? 
These things I've spoken to you, why? In order that my joy may be in you. And that your joy, I love this picture, may be full. Have you ever thought to yourself, like, I need less joy? I'm just too happy. Because Jesus says that when you abide in him, and the proximity to him matters, just like this little bag of tea, the minute minute I pull it out, the relationship is done. The tea begins to weaken. And this becomes trash. But the longer they abide together, the more they grow toward one another. And the longer that we deeply abide in Him and His Word and His love, the more it bubbles out of us and the more life we experience. Proximity matters. And when we dig deeply into Him, when we find our identity in Him and let that overflow, well, then you see the impetus for mission. Did you catch that? It's fruitful fruitful. Hear all the words of Jesus coming to fruition in the promise of Psalm chapter 1? Drink. Come to me. I will give you water. The Holy Spirit will fill you and out of you will come rivers of flowing water. Did you catch that? Tree rooted right by the streams of flowing water. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Picture this. Apart from this, we are dead. So here's how I want to respond. I just want to spend the next couple of minutes. Normally, I kind of lead us in a prayer. But if you will, I want to teach you something that I hope will, will, some of you have done this with me before. But I want us to just for the next couple of minutes as we wrap up, I don't want to lead us in prayer. And the moment we're done, worship is going to come. Worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing the goodness of, of Jesus and the truthfulness of the ways in which this promise in Psalm 1 is fulfilled for us. So I just want us to, to pray through this together. So just bow with me, okay? Look at your text if you have it or you can just listen to me speak it to you. Let's just pray. Let's let this shape our prayer. And let's ask God. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want your words to be to God. So let's just begin. Let's bow and pray. Blessed is the man. Would you just ask God to bless you? Would you ask God right now to bless you with something that the world can't take away? Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Would you just ask God to reveal to you the things in your own life that are currently robbing you of joy? In your own words, would you just ask God to show you the ways of sinfulness, the advice of wickedness, the cynicism and derision that you've allowed to define you and how you respond? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Would you just join me? Would you confess? Would you confess with me? Confess with me that we have delighted in all sorts of other things. And would you just begin to ask God that he would stir in you an affection and a new joy for his word and him speaking over you? It says the blessed one is like a tree, a tree that's planted by streams of water.
Would you picture the tallest, largest, healthiest tree, and would you just right now ask God to make your faith like it? Would you ask God to make you like a tree that even in the midst of a hurricane and a storm won't fall down? Would you ask God that he would give you a picture of blessing that a season can't destroy? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Would you right now, just in your own way, in your own words, would you confess to God the places in your life where the leaves have withered, where you are dry and cold, where you are bitter? Would you ask that he would pour out a blessing on you that would be fruitful and multiply to the people around you? The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In your own words, would you just ask God that he would sustain you and keep you? Would you right now just ask God in your own words, to hold you fast, to grip you tightly. That when we fail to abide in him and when we seek to wander from him, that he would remain in us, that he would hold us tightly. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for even now just the words that we've spoken in our own hearts to you. We thank you that Father, you hear them and you, you are not oblivious to them, but you mean to bless us like trees, fruitful trees, such that the life source that you give us and the good news of Jesus abides in us so deeply that it gives us new life, new life that scatters and multiplies to others. Only you can do this, Jesus. In your name we ask it. Amen.